Welcome back. Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. I am Seth Liebson. We have David Dahl in studio with us. What do we got on our lapel pin here today? What's our political lapel pin? Give Ike your congressman. Give Ike your congressman. Give Ike your congressman. So this would have been a midterm. Yes, from the many midterm elections when the Republicans did not fare so well. Yeah, midterm election where they're telling uh, where Ike is where the Republican president makes a good point, which is I need a Republican Congress, right? Mm Mm-hmm. What was it William Buckley said about Eisenhower? I learned the other day. He said, I don't say I like Ike. I say I support Ike. (laughs) (laughs) I've not heard that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This week is Teacher Appreciation Week. It comes to us with a lot of interesting news, including the distortions of not ancient history, but recent times from the teacher union president, Randy Weingarten, as we detailed yesterday. But more so, it comes to us with bad news about education in America and what is our most important part of education. Here's the headline. Eighth grade students are doing worse in American history than at any other time since we've been measuring it. The statistic comes out today from the nation's report card, more professionally known as the National Assessment of Education Progress, or NAEP. It's the worst we've done in 30 years of measuring this. 13% of our nation's 8th graders are proficient in American history. You got that? 13%. Nearly half, nearly half are below basic, which is to say failing. Nearly half of all 8th graders get an F in American history. For what it's worth, they measure this again in the 12th grade where the number is worse. More than half fail there. You know what the message is? The longer you stay in American schools, the worse you do in American history. We spoke a bit last week on the importance of memory, which is related to history and the study of it. In the world of pedagogy, the teaching and importance of knowing our history is in is wrapped up in the concept of memory. A friend of mine sent me this quote from, my friend Steve sent me this quote from Elie Wiesel. Without memory, there is no culture. Without memory, there would be no civilization. No society, no future, close quote. Well, as Ed Koch would famously ask, how we doing? Here's how, from another European, Milan Kundera, quote, the first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history. Then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, the nation will begin to forget what it was. The world around it will forget even faster. Close quote. One look at these scores, these awful achievements, and you have to wonder if it isn't somewhat deliberate at the retail level and completely deliberate at the wholesale. When it comes to teaching, I like to remember that in 1988, then Education Secretary Bill Bennett commissioned a study entitled What Works in Education? It was based on the most sound of research, and because it served students, children, and families and the outcomes they expected, it's been, of course, mostly dispensed with. Why, you may ask. The same reason the head of the United Federation of Teachers, Albert Schenker, once said, as soon as students pay union dues, they'll be my first concern. Now, as you know, a funny thing happened on the way to that notion. Children did become a concern of the teachers and teachers' unions in a way they never had been, and especially over the past 20 years or so, but for all the wrong reasons. Not for reasons of academic outcome, but rather social outcomes. 
Hannah Arendt noticed this progressive tendency early on, writing, We are reaching the point where it is the children who are being asked to change and improve the world as we adults have our political battles fought out in their schoolyards. I give you almost every school board meeting you've attended out of outrage over the past several years to see the truth of that borne out. President Joe Biden has now repeatedly said about our nation's students, they're our children, or they're all our children. They're not somebody else's children. And to the teachers, they're yours. Two years ago, the former head of the DNC and former governor of Virginia, trying to become the governor again, said, quote, I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decisions. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach, close quote. In our progressive mindset, Parents as parents are out. Public employee teachers as parents are in. And if reliable research since Oh About Forever is solid on not exposing young and developing minds to age-inappropriate advanced sexual themes is to be desired, much less considered, you will be called and labeled a bigoted epithet of one kind or another for saying this. You might even have several corporations attack you or the police monitor you. Again, to Hannah Arendt, if I might, quote, To force parents to send their children to a school with beliefs against their will means to deprive them of rights which clearly belong to them in all free societies, the private right over their children and the social right to free association, close quote. Anyway, Back to what works in education, what the research shows, not the research of how to make a Marxist, not the research of the pedagogy of the oppressed or its notion of education as a revolutionary act, which were the dominant books in education schools in the 1960s, 70s, and in one case still today. And I suppose that point begs the question of what the purpose of education is. To most parents, it's to teach their children well. To the Marxists and educators as revolutionaries, it's to upend everything in society. In fact, it may be the most antisocial movement in the country because it's designed to change society with children as the early recruits and infantry. But if you're of the view of most parents, you want your child proficient, if not advanced, in certain things. Math, literacy, history, geography, and the like, including music and art, or at least an appreciation for them. And to accomplish that, of course, requires great teachers dedicated to those instructions. That would seem an obvious point, but it is not. As the What Works in Education research found, quote, Common sense tells us, and education research confirms, that youngsters rarely learn what they do not study. Since students study what adults teach, it is important for adults to define essential knowledge and resolve to teach it well. Close quote. Now, stop. If adults teach something other than math, literacy, geography, history, and the like, students will learn that something else, those things. You may at this point want to ask yourself why it is that 44% of our fourth graders are illiterate, but well-versed, proficient, one might even say, in themes racial and sexual. You may want to ask yourself why 50% of American 12th graders are functionally illiterate in American history, but proficient in knowing how to talk about why they think America is fascistic, systemically racist, and evil. And evidently now, so too, 8th graders. Now, I think two other things are important to mention here as well, and I haven't heard mentioned elsewhere. 
Up until about five years ago, when teacher retention rates in the teaching profession was rallying across the country for better remuneration, the chief complaint was how much frustration teachers had with their extra word workload, the extra workload that had been foisted upon him that th- them, that they were expected to do so much more than just teach for eight hours a day. That's the extra workload they're talking about, asked to do the work of parents. That was the complaint. Parents sending their kids to school without having done the real homework of life at home. Teachers had to teach their kids manners and discipline and respect for elders and proper clothing and the importance of school in the first place, not to mention hygiene. Teachers would often say things like, we have double duty now. The work we're supposed to do and the work parents expect or rely on us to do, or alternatively, the work we're supposed to do and the work parents won't do, that we have to, that falls to us. For those complaints of many years standing, we whiplashed to in loco parentis, we will be the parents, we should be the parents, or at least the parents should not be involved. The children are when they are in school, as Joe Biden iterates, the teacher's children and nobody else's. Isn't that a curious turn from teachers complaining they had to do too much of the work from home to now wanting to do all the work of the home? What was a complaint only five years ago has become the demanded wish, the desire today. I think this is so because when ideology and the use of education for revolutionary outcomes is the desire, no amount of work is too much. It moves education from work to passion. A permanent revolutionary institution was discovered, the American school. Workers of the world unite is not an empty cry, and the common ownership of the means of production is the public school, where parents with their own ideas are no longer welcome. You see this even in school decisions now to conceal from parents the choices of young kids or the desires of young kids who wish to sexually transition or even change their clothes during school hours or their names. What the neo-Marxist movement brought to education was the notion that there is no such thing as a neutral or apolitical education process. The personal is political and everything is now personal. And for becoming maximally in loco parentis in place of the parents, it's a pretty short stone's throw to parents' patriae where the state becomes the parent, as in Cuba, as in the old USSR, as in China, just as in nowhere anyone tries to move to, but millions have tried to and still try to escape from. Back to the teaching profession for a moment, because I think in honoring teachers, there is an imperative to honor the profession so that it, it, so that it, it, it succeeds. In the What Works report, we read about what makes for a great teacher, and the answer is first, a thorough knowledge of the subject he or she proposes to teach. Second, the ability and desire to communicate that knowledge to students, and third, sound character. These attributes are to be found in individuals from many walks of life, and they include but are by no means limited to graduates of education schools, but not just there. Telling me someone is a good teacher because they went to a graduate school of education is like telling me someone is a good writer, thinking, thinker, communicator, you name it, because they went to graduate school too. Pause a moment. Anyone know a bad lawyer? Anyone know a bad doctor? They went to graduate school. So consider the irony of our current situation when thousands of American parents are pulling their children out of public schools where education is free and teachers are nearly all certified 
and placing them into private schools where they pay tuition and many teachers are uncertified or homeschooling. Let me take a moment on homeschooling. I don't care what the communalists or Joe Biden or Randy Weingarten say. It is an upending of all Western understanding to refuse to acknowledge that parents are the children's first, best, and all but indispensable teachers. And so those who choose to homeschool will largely do with their student pupils what you can never pay enough to do a professional to do. This is where I usually would put in a good and positive word for the amateur teachers or the word amateur. The word amateur should not be a pejorative. It was never meant to be. It means non-professional, someone who does something not because they are paid to do it, but because they love to do it. Amateur and amore or amore, love, they come from the same word. For those not homeschooling, since teaching is indeed a profession and teachers tell us rightly they want to be treated as professionals, we should, if we want to attract the best people to teaching and keep the good teachers we already have, we must begin paying them, not simply for seniority or paper credentials, but for actual performance, that is to say for how well our teachers teach and for how much their students learn. Until good teachers are paid more than bad ones, our efforts to improve teaching and learning will be continually frustrated. This is as good a point as any at which to remind that one of the demands of the American Federation of Teachers and Randy Weingarten for reopening schools during COVID was to end teacher evaluations, as if that had anything to do with safety from the virus. It, of course, didn't. It had everything to do with union preservation. Their permanent revolution stops at nothing, not even COVID. Finally, if I may steal from his speech, Secretary Bennett delivered at a conference on teaching when he was serving as secretary, quote, teachers are absolutely critical to our identity as a people. And that lies in the fact that they hold the responsibility of preserving and transmitting to each new generation what may be called our common culture, the things that bind Americans together as one people. In its highest form, the common culture is the sum of our intellectual and spiritual inheritance, our legacy from all the ages that have gone before us. It is the knowledge, ideas, and aspirations that shape our understanding of who we are as a people and what we are capable of accomplishing. What are some of the elements that make up our common culture? They are documents like the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They are certain principles like the right to free speech and a belief that all men are created equal. They are the stories of certain individuals whose vision inspired a nation. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass. They are events from our past that have shaped who we are, such as the landing of the Mayflower, the Boston Tea Party, the surrender at Appomattox, the landing at Normandy. Our common culture also consists of great books that give the highest kind of expression to the way we find ourselves in the world, ageless works like the Odyssey and Macbeth and Huckleberry Finn. Now ask, why is it half our students don't know American history anymore? All of this because at the end of the day, no culture can exist, much less survive, if it is ignorant of its own inheritance and history, as Elie Wiesel was pointing out in the quote I did at the beginning. When you look at what is being taught to teachers to teach, when you look at the dumping of the great books and the adoption of the avant-garde and counterculture books, along with the inflated effort to downgrade our history along the way, you are not just changing the entire profession of teaching, you are changing the entire culture and country. So as we appreciate teachers this week, let us ask what it is that should be appreciated. That is to say, what is it we are putting up value upon?
Some put a value on destroying and upending the common culture, the country, the family. Some struggle to preserve those things. It's all about what we appreciate. That is to say, what we value. That will determine what gets taught and what gets learned and what our future shall or shall not be. And I will leave it there. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. My friend Steve sends me a story. The Washington governor calls a special session of the legislature to push drug decriminalization law. Jay Inslee is doing that. You look at what's going on in Washington. That's that's just wonderful. What 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 will the next headline be, David? You want to guess? Washington governor calls special session to push against more fathers. I mean, what could be more damaging to a state going through what it's going as it is in Washington than to make drugs more available? Un- un- unbelievable. Public policy insanity. Michael's in Phoenix. Hello, Michael. Hey, Seth. How are you? I'm well, sir. How are you? I, I'm very well, and I enjoyed your, your opening monologue very much. Well, and, thanks. And just, just to tell you, uh, my daughter, who is conservative, I raised her as good as I could. Uh, she does, you know, have a lot of ideas that kind of skirt uh, the liberal way of thinking because, well, she is young. But um, overall, she is conservative, and she's a school teacher. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> and, and I'm very proud of her. Uh, but she tells me all the time about how the curriculum challenges her, and she's basically walking a tightrope. Yeah. You know, and uh, when when she's teaching, she teaches sixth and seventh and eighth grade. And uh, well, God bless her, Michael. I mean, really, <laughs> honest to gosh, you know, we did a rolling up of our sleeves to get conservatives to run for school board. We probably ought to do an initiative to get conservatives to apply for teaching positions in the public schools. The only reason she's walking a tightrope is because liberals have done that. We need oh, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know, but um, but she's she's there. She's doing a great job. Um, she's consistently uh, performing uh, when it comes to Good. actual grading for academics. Good. Her students are are way in the top ten percent. Oh, that's fantastic. So, I mean, yeah, she's so modeling she, what a good teacher is. On this Teacher Appreciation Week, Michael, tell her we appreciate her. Oh, and I tell her all the time how Good. much I appreciate that she's been there. Bless you. And, uh, but, yes, but she tells me it's a, it's a struggle. Uh, it's uh, a struggle, but it wouldn't be if she had more allies. That's my point. Let's get conservatives on the school boards and let's get conservatives as public teachers because those public schools are not going to go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, and 34 Past the Hour brings us the great John Dombrowski. He is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, grandcanyonplanning.com, his great website, and he is the host of his own radio show, heard here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. The word on wealth. There's one story here, John, isn't there? There is. You yeah. sound very chipper, though, today, I will say. Is that unusual for me? No, but you just sound overly... 
excited today. Uh. <laughs> Something good is going on, I can tell, in your life. That's great. We should seize on it and go get dinner or something. That sounds like You a don't want to waste Seth in a good mood, you know? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, interest rates did go up today. That's what we talked about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is uh, the 10th consecutive rate increase Mm -hmm. that the Fed has done. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, this is uh, a 16-year high for interest rates now. Uh, We've got the federal um, funds bench rate at uh, between five and five and a quarter. That's a pretty big number. Yeah. It's it's a terrible thing when we think about if we're trying to borrow money. But you know what's interesting now for those out there who are retired and those who maybe had some money sitting in the bank and they were uh, concerned they weren't earning any interest on their, their money in the bank, all of a sudden, Seth, uh, a bright side to all of this is that people who have money in a bank account now are actually earning some interest oh, on interesting. that. Oh, interesting. You know, so uh, I, I actually looked at my bank account and I saw, uh, you know, a decent amount of interest that was put into my account this past month. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, gosh, I'm going to get a 1099 for interest this year oh, on wow. my bank account. Yeah. You know, in the that past. That hasn't it, happened in a long yeah, time. Yeah, if you I didn't bet. earn enough yeah. interest on your bank account, you didn't even get a 1099. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I would say that for those out there who are living off of their savings right now, mm-hmm. you are getting at least some type of rate of return, which okay. is about the only positive that I could give you for uh, you know, raising rates at this point. One of the interesting things I'm reading in these stories is there's this um, collective, I guess, settled media wisdom. Here's a sentence from the Wall Street Journal. The Fed, flights infla- excuse me, the Fed fights inflation by slowing the economy economy through raising rates. Mm-hmm. I get that, and that's the only thing the Fed can do. But, right. you know, Congress and the president have a role here, too. Yep. And, you know, we learned from Milton Friedman, you know, we have a spending problem. We're going we're, we're gonna, to, you know, put this pr- pressure on the Fed in the first place. But if we had a political solution, which we do, r- r- related to spending, we yes. wouldn't be in the place we're in. A- absolutely. And if we had any backbone, right. you know, in Washington... Uh, we realize everyone really knows that the uh, you know no one's talking about it, but we can't continue to spend like this. Right. This is this is impossible, and we understand that there's going to come a wall that we're going to hit, and it's either going to be that we're going to change our habits, number one, or we're going to hit a real brick wall, and there's going to be some real major problems in this country. And I know that uh, the media is you know some of the media talks about it, some of the media doesn't talk about it. It's depending on who's in office, I guess. Uh, but uh, we are going to have some real challenges if things are not corrected. And I know that uh, currently right now, as we know, the House has passed a, passed uh, the debt ceiling uh, budget. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think that has a chance in you know where. Yeah, uh, I know. To get through. It's so odd. And it's how many times have we played this tape yeah. where mm-hmm. the president and Congress are at uh, daggers drawn over this debate and <clears throat> there's not a big appetite for Republicans to raise the debt ceiling, but there is a way to compromise it if they would agree to cut some of the spending and the surplus spending that's obviously been identified, and Democrats mm-hmm. have spoken about yes. wanting yes. to cut in the past, mm-hmm. but not today, huh? Not today. Not today. It's, it's not politically uh, in their best interest to do so. Uh, and now that, of course, we have uh, the president running for another term, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's there's going to be some some games that are going to be being played. Uh, to to try to dance around all of this until they get a clear direction as to ultimately what the outcome of that election is going to be in a couple of years. So I think we have a lot of uh, manipulation that's going to be going on for the next couple of years until we see uh, 
where the next presidential race actually ends up. Yeah, I, it, it's a good point, and it'll be an interesting point, too, to see. I mean, there is something eminently true, whatever your politics, which is at least the Republicans put forward a plan. The yeah. Republican majority in Congress mm-hmm. at least put forward a plan of compromise. The White House has not. No, and they're saying basically they're not going to— uh, you know, waver on their their thought of it, and so and they may win. They they, they may, may very win well this. Win. I mean, they may they may, they may have it. Yep. They may yep. they may actually. It will depend on a few brave Democrats in the Senate. I'm guessing. Yep. Um, we know we have one of them here. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll monitor it, John. Yep. Thanks for the rundown. And we did see the markets pull back yep. on this news yep. a bit, but yep. I think that they did expect that this was going to happen. So I think uh, hopefully this is going to be something that's going to be in the past in the near future. Well, we'll see if it is on yeah. Monday. Yeah. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and Sipican, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate Nicely it. done. Where are we having dinner, John? Oh, let's talk about that offline. All right, I'll talk to you later. Be good. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Unresolved issues segment here. David, we didn't talk about your new car. You got a new car. It's fantastic. I, I got to see it, and I love it. The thing about David and his throwback attitude and style and demeanor is that it, it it beckons us to a better time, a better country and a better time. So David got a 1981 Chrysler Imperial, which was a luxury car back then. Oh, yes. And just to make the point all the finer... It was the Frank Sinatra edition. Yes, the baby blue Frank Sinatra edition. The yeah. color was supposed to be the same color as old blue eyes. I eyes. love it. I love it. And the bumper sticker is Reagan 80, right? Yes, it was. A fight inflation, vote Reagan. Fight inflation, vote Reagan. A lot of people don't know this, but over half of all of the uh, Chrysler's Imperial, Chrysler Imperials from 81 to 83 were built in late 80 and sold as 81 models. Oh, no kidding. So okay. the bumper yeah. sticker was appropriate for the 1980 election. Absolutely. It was there, a 1980-built car. There many built. I think there was something like 7,000 built over all three years of... Uh, you, you have one of 7,000. Yeah, over all three years of production. And the Sinatra models are, oh, maybe 800 or so. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> let me just say this. May you ride it in good health and for a long time. I sure hope so. And when you're done... Check out the Corvarado, of which even fewer were made. Yes, I know that one. Yes. Live and Let Die. Live and Let yes. Die, yes. It's an, uh, a Cor- it's an Eldorado on a Corvette body, the mm-hmm. Corvarado. If anyone has ever seen or driven one, I would like you to call me. <laughs> Corvarado, isn't that fantastic? All right, well, we were speaking of education earlier. Congrats on the car. We were speaking of education earlier, and uh, we got to say something about higher ed, too. Perhaps we need to do away with the phrase higher ed. Let's do away with it on this show. Let's start here. Let's just call it post-secondary education, okay? From now on, David, make a note. There's going to be language police. We're going to engage in the language wars, too. It's not higher ed anymore. It's now post-secondary education because of the language police. You may recall some months back, Stanford University went through this um, went through this exercise through their Department of uh, Diversity, saying certain phrases and words were no longer to be used at Stanford. American? Nope. No longer. That was out. Better to say U.S. citizen 
immigrant was out. It was person who has immigrated. You couldn't master your subject at Stanford, in case you hadn't heard the school instructs that. Historically, masters enslaved people. And don't even think of a blind study. You couldn't do any of that at Stanford. I wonder what they did with their, with their post-bachelor degrees. Do they no longer call those master's degrees? Post-bachelor's degrees, I suppose, is what they call them. Or probably post-baccalaureate. Well, Columbia University is now in the game. I don't know if that's the East Coast version of Stanford, but these are... If Stanford's the most elite university on the West Coast, uh, Columbia is certainly up there. Did I say that wrong? If Stanford is the most elite university on the West Coast, Columbia is certainly up there on the East. Uh, what would its competition be? Yale, Harvard, Columbia, um, maybe Princeton. So anyway, uh, they're now on it. Their Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility. By the way, why do colleges need these? Departments of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility. Why do they need these departments? Honestly, are there really equity and inclusion problems on our campuses? Seems to me we're surfeited with issues of diversity and inclusion on our campuses. But these departments and um, deans and assistant and associate deans, they're new. pay tuition to pay their salaries, and their salaries are exorbitantly high. I'd be shocked if there's a dean at an elite university for diversity, equity, and inclusion that makes less. I'd be shocked if they make less than $300,000 a year. Be shocked. Anyway, um, Columbia now has their language uh, guide, and uh, as Steve Hay- Hayward writes, it's it's it requires double Orwellian backflips. It truly does. Let me give you an example. <sighs> the word tolerance is out. Do you remember when the word tolerance was the watchword? Everything was supposed to be about tolerance. Well, no longer. Here's what the code book says. Avoid the frame of tolerance. For example, tolerance of differences. This applies to every section of this guide. We should not be aiming to tolerate one another, but rather, this is important, but rather to celebrate and uplift our differences. Okay? So we are now to uplift our differences. But guess what other word is out? This is why it's a double Orwellian backflip. Empower. The guidebook says the word empower carries the condescending implication that we are giving women transgender and gender nonconforming people their basic right to equality as a gift or a magnanimous gesture rather than those communities are taking and owning what is rightfully theirs. Got it? So you can't have tolerance because that looks like you're not lifting someone up, you're granting them a right, but you can't have empower because it is showing that very lift through magnanimous gesture. That's why it's a double Orwellian backflip. And why is it a double Orwellian backflip? Because Orwell came up with the notion of doublethink. Do you remember how he defined doublethink? I have it in my handy novel of 1984 right here. To know and not to know 
to be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies, to hold simultaneously two opinions which canceled out, knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them. That's what, Stan, what, that's what Columbia is doing. To use logic against logic, to repudiate morality while laying claim to it, to believe that democracy was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy, to forget whatever it was necessary to forget, then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed, and then promptly to forget it again, and above all, to apply, apply the same process to the process itself. That was the ultimate subtlety. Consciously to induce unconsciousness, and then once again to become unconscious of the act of hypnosis you had just performed. Even to understand the word doublethink involved the use of doublethink. Now you know why we are begging and pleading to make Orwell fiction again. Folks, in thinking about the economy, you have stock market volatility, you have a possible recession, you have bank failures. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return, high fixed rate of return, not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? Why Refi offers that very investment where your interest is compounded daily, you're paid monthly, and there are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% rate of return. Why Refi is based here locally. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I have, and I can tell you, you will not get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign a thing. When you meet with the team at Why Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can and will as well. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm that, as I say, can earn you up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out and investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. That's 888-YREFI-34. Um, you pay those high and exorbitant fees to colleges and universities like Columbia, as I was mentioning, mentioning before, and... Uh, you just it, you just you just have to scratch your head as to why you would ever send your child to a place that now has a handbook that says um, avoid the phrase someone is the right man for the job avoid the phrase man up avoid the phrase man made try having a hearing on climate change. I guess they don't use man-made anymore, do they? I guess it's anthropomorphic. Is that the word of art they use now? Boy, did you see uh, Diana Fergot Roth today testifying on Congress up against Sheldon Whitehouse? If you have a chance to see how to handle a liberal Democrat, I'm kind of focused now, as you can tell a little bit, on these conservatives who know how to stand up to the left. She did it right, man. She was great. I guess I couldn't say she did it right, man, if I went to Columbia. Because you're supposed to, as the guidebook says, avoid patriarchal language. So don't say man-made, say handmade. You know what? It's not the same word. You can't say it's a dark day in history. Words like black and dark are often used symbolically to express negative concepts. You want to know something about that? They're not by the people who were using them until they read this. I think it's a, I think it's a tell. I think it's a melding of the racism of the left when they say black 
and dark express negative concepts. I've never thought they did. They're the ones who think they do. They are the real racists.